We are in Mark chapter 6 today, continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. And if you're new here, uh, welcome. Glad you're here. Again, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here. It's my privilege on most Sundays, um, actually the goal is about three quarters of the time to be the pastor that brings the Sunday message. I've been in the pulpit. I've been preaching uh, for a while recently. It's been a a joy for me. I hope it's been a joy for you. (laughs) Um, As uh, I was out of the pulpit quite a while uh, before because of my role in in our denomination. Uh, So uh, I've enjoyed this, but I'm not the only guy that preaches. Um, But this morning we are continuing in Mark chapter 6. And this has been a series entitled Amazed, and I uh, have been amazed to see Jesus. I, I trust you as well have been amazed to see Jesus in, in his glory and what he's been doing and what he's been teaching. We just recently finished a, a section of Mark where Jesus was just doing all sorts of great miracles. It was like one miracle after another. Uh, it started out actually where he had a time of teaching by the Sea of Galilee, and just fantastic teaching, full of wisdom, full of insight and, and truth. Uh, just a wonderful teaching time. And then he got in a boat and, and started to go across the lake and countered this storm that would have swamped the boat and drowned everybody. But he stood up, uh, awoke out of a sleep, stood up and calmed the storm and demonstrated his lordship over disaster, natural disasters. And then he, they landed on the other side and they encounter this man who's infested with thousands of demons and his life is a mess and Jesus drives the demons out and the, and the man's life is transformed. He demonstrates his lordship over darkness, over demons. They get in the boat, go to the, back to their hometown on the west side of the lake. He gets out of the boat and shortly after that encounters a man whose daughter is dying, follows that man, is interrupted by a woman who has a sickness she's had for 12 years. And she says, if I could just touch his garment, I'll be healed. And she does that. Touches his garment. The power of God goes from Jesus to her. She's healed of this disease. Jesus demonstrates his lordship over disease. And then, in the meantime, the man's daughter has died. Jairus, the synagogue ruler, one of the rulers, his daughter has died. And everyone expects that's the end of the story. But no, Jesus is there. And he goes to the house, and he commands the girl and invites the girl, instructs the girl, little girl, get up. She gets up, raised from the dead. So he demonstrates his lordship over death. So these succession of four miracles, and and the teaching before that is just fantastic. It's exciting. It's triumphant. It's a picture of Jesus that is really glorious. And, And if we, at this point, stopped... We might think that his ministry was just full of all these victories. His ministry was just full of one triumph after another without cease. But then we encounter chapter 6. And all of a sudden, we're brought back down to earth. We're made to realize that it's not always triumph for Jesus and his ministry. And Mark introduces us to some serious rejection here in this passage. We'll take a look at it in a minute We're reminded that not everybody receives Jesus. Not everybody benefits from putting their trust in Him. There are many that miss Jesus. And the title of the message is Missing 
Jesus. They miss Jesus and the wonderful rewards that He brings. This is a reminder from Mark. It's a hint by Mark as well of what's to come. Jesus' ministry involves being rejected. It involves offending others. It involves failure, at least in the world's eyes. And so this is instructive to us. It helps us recognize that this is part of following Jesus as well. To experience difficulty. To see others that, whom we love and respect reject Him. There's a lot in this passage to learn from as we look to follow Jesus as His disciples. So let's pray and ask God to teach us through this passage of Scripture. Lord, we thank You for Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. We thank You, Lord, for all that we've seen of You and all Your glory up till now. How we have been amazed by You. And now, Lord, as we look at this section, would You help us to learn from You as well? It's a slightly different message for us to hear. But nevertheless, a message we need to hear. So would You speak to us through Your Word? Would You teach us? Would You teach us from... The, the negative example of the folks from Jesus' hometown. Would you teach us about the nature of following you and belonging to you? Would you glorify your name as we hear from you? Come, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Use me, Lord, how I need your help, but how faithful you are. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says, He went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own households. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is a tragic story, actually. A tragic story of how Jesus' hometown rejects him because they could not believe that their hometown boy could be anything special. They totally missed Jesus. And really, missing Jesus is the worst thing that can happen to anyone. Missing Jesus is the worst thing. So let's dig in and see how they missed Jesus and learn from that. Jesus has had this period of doing lots of miracles. His reputation has gone out from Capernaum. People have heard about it. People have heard about it likely in Nazareth. Nazareth is his hometown. It's about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. Capernaum is located on the west side of the Sea of Galilee along a trade route. Nazareth is about 25 miles or so southwest. It's situated uh, in a hilly area, kind of at the edge of the hills, these limestone hills, overlooking a vast plain to the south. You can look from Nazareth to this day, of course, to the south and see actually east and west and just see for miles and miles. Nazareth itself is on a hill among these limestone 
uh, hills. It's about 1,000 feet up from the plain. And uh, there were some major trade routes, actually, that went, went by this area. This is Jesus' hometown. He had grown up here. Mary and Joseph were from here. And it says here that he is a carpenter. They say, uh, is, is in their questioning of Jesus, they, they say, uh, is not this the carpenter? Uh, the word in the original language for carpenter can also be translated builder. We tend to think of carpenters as someone who works with a lot of wood. Uh, but they didn't have a lot of wood where they were. And this was a more general term. It meant basically a skilled builder, a skilled construction worker. And so a carpenter would work certainly with wood and making things like plows and doors, but also would help build houses, help repair houses. So any sort of skilled building, uh, any sort of skilled craftsmanship was what a carpenter would do. And so Jesus is a carpenter. He inherited this job uh, from his earthly father, Joseph, and it was just a very normal job in a relatively small town. This was a small village, relatively small, uh, maybe 500 people, maybe more than that, somewhere in there. And so everyone knew Jesus. He was Jesus the carpenter, right? He's like Pete the plumber, Ed the electrician, right? He's just a, everyone knows Jesus. And so he's coming to the town, and this is the guy that, you know, maybe a year earlier, had recently installed your door in your house or, or helped extend you know, the living room or something in your house. You saw him. You knew him. And you've heard about him, and he comes to town, and he speaks in the synagogue. See, Jesus, up to his ministry, till he started his ministry, he was not doing miracles and doing profound things, despite what the legends say. There are legends out there, some of them quite silly, about what Jesus did. You know, as a kid, like he kind of did these little miracles for his, his buddies. You know, make, I think there's one about making clay pigeons into real pigeons in front of his friends and, and, and ideas like that. No, actually, his glory as God in the flesh was hidden. He revealed his glory when he started his ministry. He started doing miracles and teaching. Now, certainly he was godly and holy. He was a perfect son to his father and mother, but he was fairly normal. He had hidden his glory. And so for the townspeople, he was just Josh the carpenter. Jesus, by the way, uh, in, uh, at least among English speakers, we don't name our kids Jesus. We kind of have a reverence for that name, but it's a very normal name. Uh, it's the name Joshua, which is a fairly common name. So he, he has a normal name. He's just Joe, Joe the carpenter. Joe the carpenter is back in town. Uh, and that's how they knew him. Now, he has gone on to, to fame, and he's done miracles so that, so forth. Um, but he's just, to them, the, the fairly normal guy. But at least they believe enough about him to allow him to speak in the synagogue. And in the synagogue worship, uh, they would invite people uh, to comment on the Scriptures. If you were uh, relatively respected, certainly if you were a rabbi, you could comment on the Scriptures. So... They allow him to do that. And he does. And it says here that many who heard him were astonished. They were astonished. Now, we have seen that throughout Mark. Mark likes to talk about people being astonished or amazed as they hear from Jesus. And this is certainly the the same idea, but there's something a little different here. They're not just plain old astonished. They're not just like, wow, this is incredible. God has come to Nazareth. No, there's something else that's going on in their astonishment because 
if you look at the questions they begin to ask in that astonishment, you see something besides just plain astonishment. They ask questions. I think we can project if we have the, the, this section. I just want people to see this section of verse 2 and 3. It says, uh, they're asking questions, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom, wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, these are not questions like just curiosity, right? Just like, oh, oh, wow, this is amazing. I wonder where he got this. No, no, this, if you hear, you can hear it in the questions. They're, they're emphasizing again and again, where, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him, Joe the carpenter? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They're asking questions in their astonishment saying, we don't get it. This is just Joe the carpenter. How can he be doing this sort of stuff? How can he be teaching and acting in power like this? Where did this man get these things? Where, where was it given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And then they follow it up with what's behind all this. Is not this the carpenter? He just fixed my door. Last year. And now he's doing these things? Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? I mean, you know, everyone knows each other. This is the, the son of Mary, the brother of these people. Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They took offense at Jesus at this point. They were scandalized that this hometown boy would be a prophet or something else. They took offense at Jesus. Now Mark is using that word offense because he's hinting of what's to come. But their behavior, they take offense. They're scandalized. They're, they're demonstrating what is, is called the crabs in the bucket phenomenon. Have you ever heard of this phenomenon, the crabs in the bucket? If you put one crab in a bucket, a shallow bucket, he'll crawl out, Right? But if you put a bunch of crabs in the bucket and one of the crabs tries to crawl out, the other crabs grab them and pull them back in. And they won't allow that crab to get out. It's this mentality. This mentality that if I can't have it, neither can you. Nobody's going to do better than we are. It's driven really by pride and envy. I don't know if crabs have pride and envy, but they basically are just being crabs. Uh, they, they, they don't want another crab to succeed. They want probably to eat that other crab. It's probably what they want. But the crabs in the bucket mentality is often displayed by people. It's common in groups of people who are tightly associated and who lack perhaps some social ec or economic status. And when somebody from their midst tries to make a better life for himself or herself, the others will try to pull them back. Oh, I think you're pretty big. You're nothing. I know who you really are. I read a story of a pastor, actually. He uh, this man came from uh, ungodly and humble beginnings. Apparently God got a hold of his life, transformed him, and he went to pastor a church in another town, uh, not too far from his hometown. And his family was so offended by the idea that the, he thought he could be a pastor. Uh, and he was. He was the senior pastor of this church, a relatively successful church from what I would understand. His, one of his family members said, you know, 
we, you, you can't think you're this. I'm going to call up the real pastor and tell him who you really are. You're, you're a bad person. I know you are. Uh, and he was the real person. They just could the real pastor. They just couldn't, you know, handle the idea that he had somehow escaped that background. And that's the mentality here. The crab's in the bucket. And this is Jesus, the prophet, supposedly, to them. And so they'll, they'll not receive him. There's pride and there's envy driving their opinion of Jesus. And because of that, they're blinded to who he really is. They miss Jesus. They miss who he is. And it changes everything. It changes everything about their experience and everything about this passage. It needn't have been like this. We've been watching Jesus do miracle after miracle, fantastic miracle after fantastic miracle. We've been watching him transform people's lives. And you would expect it to continue, but here in his hometown, they're offended by him. They're scandalized by Jesus. Their pride and their envy will not receive him as he is. And Mark has this here, I believe, in Scripture. God had the author Mark put this in this passage for a number of reasons. One being, it's a hint of what's to come. Because it's not just his hometown that's offended by Jesus. There are lots of people offended by Jesus. Offense is part of the ministry of Jesus. People are offended by him. And so we're going to see, we've already seen it, we're going to see it some more. The religious authorities are offended by Jesus. He is offensive to many. Romans 9 says this, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling. Zion being Jerusalem. Behold, I am laying in Zion among God's people, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In God's plan, Jesus comes across offensive. Offensive to his hometown, offensive to religious religious authorities, offensive to many. And ultimately, he is going to be consumed by those offended by him. Their offense towards Jesus is going to lead them to plot and to plan his destruction. They are going to plan to put him to death, to avenge themselves on Jesus because of their offense. But this is all part of God's plan. This is what's incredible. That this is all part of God's plan. People being offended and seeking to to destroy Jesus. And their offense is going to lead to Jesus actually being crucified on a cross. They plot and they plan. Eventually, they succeed. And Jesus is handed over to the Roman authorities and condemned to death. He's condemned to death by crucifixion. And to be crucified on a cross was the worst thing that could have happened to a Jew. It was ultimate failure, complete failure, for a number of reasons. It was not only a horrible death, but it was a shameful death. Uh, We emphasize sometimes how terrible it was in terms of it being torture, and it was. It was a slow, painful death. But it was also very shameful because you were put to death in front of everybody, and it was a slow death. And you were were basically taken, everything was taken from you. you. You were put on the cross naked, and you died slowly in front of everybody. It was shameful. It was torturous. And it was the worst thing for a Jew. 
Because the Scriptures said and say, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. Anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed by God. So to be crucified was not only terrible pain and terrible shame, but it was a sign of God's abandonment of the person. So it was the ultimate failure for a Jew. And so those who were offended by Jesus thought they are finally avenged in his crucifixion because he has been shown to be the ultimate loser. That is the obvious conclusion for those of that day as they observed Jesus on the cross. But there's an incredible irony in all this. An amazing irony. Because people were offended by Jesus. But there was an offense, there is an offense even more significant than people's offense for Jesus, against Jesus. And God used their offense against Jesus to orchestrate Jesus' crucifixion to deal with a more significant offense. God's offense towards those He loves. You see, more significant than this is the, the truth that God is offended by us in our sin and in our rebellion in our choosing to go our own way, in our choosing to, to ignore God, our choosing to disobey Him, our choosing to disbelieve Him, this, this awful disposition we have not to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love others as ourselves. God's holy. God's good. God's perfect. And he can't help but be offended by us. It's not a personal offense like a, he's just being petty. No, it's the offense of a holy, good God against people that deserve his wrath and justice for offense. There's an offense far greater than any offense we might have towards other people. The offense God has towards us in our sin. And the irony of the cross is that offense drove Jesus there. The offense of people. But behind it was the offense of God that drove Him there. Because God was offended, is offended by our sin, yet He loves us. And so in Christ, He brought a solution to this offense. For Christ went to that cross, and in His death, and all that that death meant in terms of of shame and torture and failure, It also meant something more significant. It meant atonement. Jesus went to the cross in an eternal plan among the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this plan that God in His love and in His holiness had to deal with this offense of His people and rescue them. And so Christ went to the cross and He stood in our place on the cross and bore our sins, bore on himself the reasons for offense, took upon himself your sin and rebellion against God. And the offense was transferred from you to him. If you trust in Christ, this is all for you. The offense was transferred to Christ and then God poured out His holy justice, His holy wrath on the Son and punished the Son on the cross. It's just an amazing 
thought. God the Father punishing God the Son. The Son bearing the holy wrath of God for His offense against us. And paying for that offense completely. Every last bit down to the bottom of the barrel paid for by Christ on the cross. That's the good news. And then on the third day, He rose again. He rose again as verification that indeed He had paid for the offense. He had exchanged places with us, paying for our sins, offering up His righteousness before God that was accepted by God and therefore God exalted Him through the resurrection. And, and by rising from the dead, He demonstrates God's victory over sin and death and His victory for us as we turn and trust to Him. And, and this victory is yours if you would just simply turn from your sin and turn to Christ. All this is for you. Incredible irony, what went on on the cross. Paying for our sins, dealing with our offense against God. They thought it was about their offense against Jesus, the people as they watched. But there was something much more significant. It was about God's offense against His people. And paying for that and making a way for forgiveness and life. And so Mark in this passage is hinting at this background, this offense against Jesus and where it's going to go. He's getting us ready for this. And He's informing us about this so that we might understand what, it, what is coming. And we might understand that people being offended against Jesus is part of being a Christian. People will be offended against you and likely reject you. It also serves as a warning because we can be offended against Jesus. We can reject Him like they did in Nazareth. And the results here in the passage are, are, are awful. Missing Jesus is the worst thing that can happen to any one of us. And this story is a picture of this. What happens as a result of them being offended and rejecting Jesus? What happens here? Well, if you follow along in the passage, Jesus responds to them. He, in verse 4, and it says, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. He's basically saying the crab bucket effect, right? The crab's in the bucket effect here. And then it says this. This is amazing. And he could do no mighty work there. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Isn't that amazing? He could do no mighty work there. This, this is God in the flesh. And it says in Mark, he could do no mighty work there. There's a couple huge implications from that statement. One is that these folks missed Jesus. They missed him. We know what he'd been doing. Four incredible miracles. He's delivering people from disasters and demons and disease and death. Incredible miracles had changed people's lives, had released them from what had imprisoned them. And certainly in Nazareth, there must have been some who were afflicted with disease. There must have been some who were even demonized. There were probably some who were near death. And Jesus was more than capable of ministering to them. Yet, it says, because of their offense, because of their unbelief, He could do no mighty miracle there. They missed it. They missed the rewards of faith. They didn't believe in Him, and they didn't experience the reward. 
Faith is believing that God exists and that He rewards to earnestly seek Him. When we believe, He rewards. When we don't believe, there's no reward. And there's no belief here, there's no reward. Jesus could not do any mighty miracle there. They missed Jesus. And not only did they miss Him for the time and for the healing they might have had, but they, if they continued in this, they would miss Him forever. Because to miss Jesus, to go on in our sin, is to live forever without Jesus. That's part of the implication of sin, the consequences of sin. God's holy justice towards sin is to punish us by essentially exiling us from His presence. And there's nothing worse than to be exiled, put away from His presence, and suffer all those consequences. You know, you hear people, and I once said things like this, well, you know, I'm going to party in hell with all my buddies. You know, we're going to have a good time. See you in hell. We're going to party. There's that idea. People who say that know nothing of what they say. I think they say it. I think I said it because I just thought hell would just be another version of the earth. You know, it would, it would be like, it would be, I'd basically be able to do what I do here, but, you know, God wouldn't be around. But the truth is that all the blessings we have here are because God is around and God is constantly doing good things and blessing. And blessing even those that reject Him. And He does that because it says in Scripture that His kindness might lead us to repentance. His desire is that by blessing and being there and showing His goodness, that people might see and repent and come to Him. But there'll be a day after a lifetime of receiving kindness and rejecting it and going our own way if we, if we do that, where He will say, okay, your choice here are the consequences. Eternity without me. There's no partying in hell. There's only grief and sorrow and loneliness and darkness and regret. Forever. Missing Jesus is the worst thing for anyone. And it grieved Jesus to see this happen. And you can read about it. We'll, we'll encounter it as we go through the Gospels. It grieved him to see people reject what they could have had in him. This village missed him for healing for that day, but they, if they continued, missed him forever. It's tragic. That is part of what's profound in what he says here. He could do no mighty work. They missed him. They missed what they could have had for the day and forever because when he works healing, he works healing spiritually as well. They missed him. It's profound just for that. But it also, it's profound because of the implications here. The statement's amazing because it says something about the role of faith in God's miracles. Apparently, God responds to faith. When there's faith, He rewards and He responds and He blesses. That's profound and that's important for us to understand. He is pleased to respond to faith. It says in Scripture clearly, right? Faith is believing that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. There, part of faith is believing that He rewards, that it's worth believing in Him because He brings a blessing. That's really important to understand. Now, there's some things that we have to be careful with in this passage, and there are some who would perhaps go to this passage and say some things about faith that just aren't true. Faith is in God, the living God, it's a, about a relationship with Him. It believes that He exists and that He rewards. Faith is not a principle for life. God is not a force or principle. There's this teaching out there. It's often called positive confession or word of faith. 
And positive confession is a good thing. We want to confess truth with our mouth. We want to believe God and recite his promises. But that's different than what these guys say. And they basically teach that through what you say and you believe, you can make things happen. The crazy idea that somehow I can speak my dreams into existence. And those dreams in that context often have to do with things like nice cars, lots of money, and health. It's called the health and wealth gospel. And it's based on this idea that uh, taking this, what Jesus says here and saying, well, if, if he couldn't do much because there is no faith, if there is faith, then you make him do much. You'll have him do much. And it treats God like a machine. If I just operate on this principle of big faith and believing for great things, then I can make God give me stuff. And often that stuff, things like temporary health and wealth. There's nothing wrong with health and wealth. Sadly, often in this form of teaching, the health and wealth is devoid of spiritual health and wealth, though. I want material health and wealth. I don't care about spiritual health and wealth. Well, God cares a lot more about spiritual health and wealth than we do. And that's his goal. When there's faith, he wants to reward it with spiritual health and wealth. Yes, he rewards us materially as well, but that's not the main goal. I, it scares me to think that somehow there could be this principle where I could just believe something and it would happen. That I could have what I crave. I don't want what I crave. I might want it at the moment. But long term, I know better that God knows better. God understands that giving me what I crave is not what's best for me, but giving me what he craves for me is best. And so he will use trials. He will use lack. He will use waiting to give to us what is best. So when we believe in him, we believe in him, the God who knows best. We put our faith in him and allow him to lead our lives and to answer our prayers, and to provide for us. So, so it, as it says here about Jesus could not do any mighty work there, except heal a few people, it does point to the importance of faith. But the importance of faith is based on this, that God, God is pleased to respond to faith. God's not limited by lack of faith, okay? God can do anything he pleases, but he is pleased to respond to faith. He chooses to respond to faith and generally chooses to respond to lack of faith by not rewarding. Thank God that that principle is not absolute because none of us would come to know him. He reaches out in mercy and grants faith to those who are undeserving. So let us be a people of faith. Let us read this passage and, and understand the importance of faith. This town of Nazareth missed Jesus. They did not believe in him. And it says something amazing here. It says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. There are few places in scripture where God marvels. Here he marvels at their unbelief. He just, in a sense, can't believe how faithless they are, how little faith there is in these people. The band could come up as I begin to close. I pray that God never has to marvel at our unbelief. This passage is here. It's a warning. It's a warning, really, for those who would be offended by Jesus to consider the results. It's also a warning, though. It's an instruction for those who do believe in Jesus to understand that 
He wants us to live by faith. He wants us to believe. And in some ways, we, we hinder him. It's, it's his choice, how to act, but, but we hinder him by unbelief. But when we believe him, he's pleased to respond. So as we read it, we should think, oh Lord, please grant that you may never have to marvel at my unbelief. And in a way to, to pray is, is just simply this. Forgive me for my measly faith. Increase my faith. Teach me to believe. In, in Scripture, we're going to come across it soon in Mark. There's somebody who is probably a lot like us. He says, as a father, he says, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. That's a great start. May we do that as people, may we say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And you know what? He's glad to respond to even a little faith. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged here. It, it talks about how much faith is needed to move a mountain. It's the faith the size of a little tiny mustard seed. Just a little bit of faith. And God will respond. But let's ask Him to give us faith. Let's ask Him to give us great faith in a great God. Let's ask Him to save us from missing Jesus and being blinded by whatever it might be, pride or envy or familiarity. You know, it's amazing. We read these stories and, and we can be familiar with Jesus and just think, well, yeah, that's Jesus. And just think like He's just, a, he's just Joe the carpenter, Jesus the Messiah. But this is God in the flesh doing great miracles, saving from sin and death transforming people's lives, using people to do great things, changing the world, doing miracles, building churches. This is God in the Scripture. So let us not treat Him as Joe the carpenter, but Jesus, God in the flesh. Let us ask Him to increase our faith. To avoid the consequences of no faith we see here, but also avoid the consequences of little faith. We can, in a sense, destine ourselves to mediocrity by little faith. When He would do so much more. When He would want us to enjoy worship so much more, grow so much more like Him, serve so much more to those around us, give so much more, rejoice so much more, and see by His grace so much more fruit. Let us not miss Jesus. Let us pray and ask Him to grant us faith that He's pleased to respond to, that He might do all that's on His heart. That's, that's the way I love to pray. Lord, use us. Change us. Fashion us so that You might do all that You're pleased to do through us. Missing Jesus is the worst thing that can happen to us. Let us run from that negative example to the positive alternative of believing Him and experiencing all that He has. Let's pray.